Very good. Everybody, welcome. Thanks for joining me here for the Treason of Isengard. This is class number 10 uh, in our uh, study of the Treason of Isengard. It's funny, I was just uh, on the phone with Dr. Powell, our our uh, head of the Council of the Wise, of course, uh, as you all know, uh, earlier today. And he was asking me, he's like, so um, how many sessions is uh, Treason of Isengard really going to be? And I'm like, no, we're totally almost on track. Uh, so I'd, we're, we may end up going like one more week extra, who knows. But it's not too bad. We're, 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 we're reasonable. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how long we can, we can keep that up. Um, Quick announcement I wanted to do before we uh, start today. Well, actually, I'm not 100% sure how quick it's going to be. No, I'll keep it quick. Um, We have, of course, launched now almost a week ago our annual fundraising campaign. For those of you who have been with us for a while, you are familiar with this. Um, This is always an exciting time of the year for me. Uh, And, you know, it's the only time of the year that I really focus on, uh, you know, concentrating on reminding everybody how much we rely and how grateful we are uh, for the support that you guys give. Um, And, uh, you know, you guys uh, and you guys, especially, I say to you listeners uh, and, uh, you know, participants here in our discussions with the with the Mythgard Academy, you know, have really been at the core of our fundraising efforts from the very beginning. Uh, And that's really been uh, really been wonderful. So just to remind you and for those uh, uh, who are new to inform you, um, uh, donating uh, to our annual fund at Signum University is uh, is how you get a say in what goes on. As I've said many times before, I don't choose the books for these discussions. Uh, these are, are handed to me by the electorate, and the electorate is is uh, is uh, composed of those who uh, who give to support this program and keep it going. So, you 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 support the program. You get some ownership of it. You you get a say in uh, in what we do. So for every don anyone who donates anything, uh, you get to vote. Uh, and the more you donate, the more say you get. You know, so you you uh, you you vote the number of times of your donation basically. Uh, and um, anyway, so that's always always been a lot of fun. If you if you donate a hundred dollars or more, or you know a monthly pledge adding up over the course of the year to over a hundred dollars. Uh, then you get a seat on the Council of the Wise, which means not only do you get to vote in the final round to decide uh, what we do, but you also get the opportunity to nominate books that you want to do. And there's a there's a discussion board that the Council of the Wise all sits on, and uh, and so you guys can all nominate uh, books that you want, and then you, there's sort of a, a, a free flowing discussion as people kind of lobby for the books that they want to do, and then there's a there's a preliminary vote where you guys narrow it down, where the Council of the Wise chooses among the books nominated, and uh, and and selects the the sort of the finalist slate, right? Usually uh, five uh, is what we've normally done in the past, five finalists, and then that slate of five finalists is then sent out to the entire electorate, and that's where everybody votes to decide. Usually, we do uh, two or three. Um, uh, um, uh, you know, yeah, usually we do two nowadays. We will sort of choose two out of the five, and we'll do those two, uh, those two in a row. Um, yeah, uh, Nancy says that discussion board is pretty fun and interesting. Yeah, it's really it's a really cool opportunity to, and you can kind of learn a lot, you know, as you um, as you see that the books that other people nominate, and you know, if there's somebody else's nominated a book that you that you really like, you can kind of pile in on that or. Uh, you know, try to, uh, you, know, you know, try to, try to, you know, bolster the case for that book and stuff. So there's a lot of that stuff that goes on behind the scenes there. You can be, you can be part of that discussion. So, um, 
that's going to be a lot of fun. Stephen, have the discussions for the next book begun already? No, not yet. Uh, not yet. We're actually setting up a new discussion board uh, the, um, because we've, we've, uh, we've moved away from the software platform that we used for the old one. Uh, so we're, we're setting up a new one uh, now. So that'll be, that'll be, uh, that'll be setting up, um, That'll be setting up pretty pretty soon, actually. And the way our policies generally work there, um, the, the the official wording of the policy is that we don't ever discuss two books by the same author in a row. Um, in, th- in in principle, that's that's the uh, that that's the rule. In practice, of course, what that has meant is no two Tolkien books in a row, uh, which is why we go back and forth. And that's been awesome, actually. You know the. Uh, um, the Mythgard Academy series has has been one of the coolest, most rewarding teaching experiences I've ever had. This has been so much fun, um, and I love both halves of it. I love the fact that we're getting to do this super in-depth study of Tolkien stuff I've never taught before, and I never would have gotten the opportunity to teach. But I mean, who teaches the history of Middle-earth cover to cover? Nobody teaches the history of Middle-earth cover to cover. Nobody even reads the history of Middle-earth cover to cover. I mean, it's just not done. Uh, and in no context, like, you know, of a, like planning a regular semester class, in no context do you ever include on the syllabus, like, let's talk about the shaping of Middle-earth from cover to cover. Like, you just don't do that. Uh, so having this opportunity has been so neat. And then the other side of it, right? Right, the non-Tolkien books that we've done, you know, you guys have chosen awesome, really fun books to do, a couple of which I'd never read before in my life. So it's been a really neat exposure for me uh, and a, sort of a discovery for me as we're going through. Uh, those two books, by the way, are, of course, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and The Dispossessed uh, by Ursula Le Guin. I'd never read either one of those before they were elected. So uh, that was uh, that would be. Uh, that would be really fun. So anyway, all of those things have been have been really great. So I, this this has been such a fun activity. I hope that you guys will uh, will, will will donate and get involved and 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 stay involved. Uh, so that'll be good. In addition, we're also doing some extra fun stuff. Um, we're doing. You may remember, of course, in, uh, if you've been around again for a while, in previous campaigns, we've done uh, you know special drawings and giveaways and things like that during a during a session, during a special session, or during one of our class sessions. We're going to do the same thing this year in the campaign, but we're doing it a little bit differently. Instead of just doing giveaways for the people who attend live, we're going to be doing sort of longitudinal giveaways over the course of the campaign. So over the next two weeks, um, we have, this is the first of three sessions that we're going to be, regular weekly sessions that we're going to be doing during uh, the course of our fundraising campaign this year. And uh, uh, so from the beginning of that to the end of that, so so it's going to be ending two weeks from tonight, uh, we're going to have, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be doing a giveaway. So if you if you donate, uh, if, if you make a donation any time between tonight and, uh, uh, or if you have already done, that one can count too. Um, but any and a donation any time prior to two weeks from tonight. So prior to what is that? Wednesday, October. Uh, what is that? The eleventh, I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's the eleventh. Yeah, uh, any any time before Wednesday, October eleventh. Um, so just make a donation of any size and send an email to donate 
at signumu.org. That's donate at signumu.org. Send us an email and just mention the Mythgard Academy in the subject line, and we will enter you into the drawing for uh, for some special prizes and stuff that we're giving away. So those of you who attend live can enter. Those of you who are listening or watching um, this after the fact, you know, asynchronously can also, we'll still have time uh, to, uh, to make a donation and uh, send that email and enter uh, for the drawings and stuff. And we're probably going to do some uh, extra drawings and door prizes and stuff for the live folks as well. It's going to be fun. So um, we'll come back to that. We're getting, um, and Carita says she doesn't know which drawing to enter. It's true. If you listen to there, there I'm doing this for each of the programs that we're doing. So, you know, uh, you could, you could always make two donations and enter twice. See, that's totally, totally legit. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, thanks for uh, thanks again for your support uh, through the years. This has been wonderful, and uh, you know we're we're doing great already. We're uh, coming up. This is the end. This is the first full week of our campaign. We're in the middle of our first fu- first full week of the campaign. We're already over twenty five thousand uh, dollars raised. That is excellent. We're trying to hit thirty thousand dollars by the end of the week. So we hope that you guys will uh, will help us do that. That's in that's in gifts and pledges uh, moving forward. Um, so thanks everybody for your support and generosity. And remember, we can't possibly, uh, do this without you. Now, um, we're gonna, so I'll, I'll come back and talk, give you a little bit more, uh, detail, especially about the prizes and stuff next week. Um, but we'll save that for next week. I don't want to spend our whole time here talking about that stuff. Um, but again, thank you, uh, for your support and your donations. Now, let us move on to the treason of Isengard and return to Lothlorien where Galadriel had just started to kind of elbow her way in, right? Um, and you know, as I said last time, I find this section so cool to see Galadriel just kind of emerge, not exactly out of nowhere, right? Um, that's actually kind of the, the, the more, the, the, the thing that makes it even more fun. Um, it, this isn't like, a burst and she suddenly appears on this on the on the scene full formed right instead watching galadriel grow over the course of the the drafts of these chapters is more like watching one of those like time lapse videos of a plant springing up and sprouting and growing right um it it it, it proceeds in regular stages but it happens pretty quickly right and we see her grow from no reference at all. There is no Lord and Lady, right? Apparently, or at least if there are, we aren't going to meet them, right? From that first thing where the only function of the elves of Lothlorien is to give the company a way to dodge the orcs, right, that are chasing them out of Moria, and then have that one encounter with Gollum, and then that's it. We're done with the elves. Then all they need to do is go down and down in the angle of the Celebrant and uh, the Anduin, they're going to have the breaking of the Fellowship. Remember, that's where it starts, right? And then we get... Hey, let's go to Karen Emroth, right? And then from from Karen Emroth, we can see that there's a city uh, of the uh, of the elves, you know. So we, we and we can see, you know, that whole contrasting of like the good forest and uh, uh, Dol Guldur, which isn't called that yet. Uh, Dol Dugol, wasn't it? Um, over on the far side, and then of course from there we get oh a message from the Lord and the lady, and an invitation down. But of course, as we saw, the Lord really was more prominent, right? You know, he, he uh, at the very beginning, Celeborn isn't playing second fiddle to his wife, right? He does almost all the talking. Um, Galadriel speaks very little. 
and uh, and he's the one who has the like the not only is he the one with the authority like sort of the the theoretical and technical authority um but he's even the one with the magic right the mirror is his mirror uh when uh, when 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 they first when we first meet it when they first uh, 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 uh get there we saw at the end last time um uh Goadriel beginning uh, things to come back, uh, uh, her her role to, to sort of grow uh, a little bit more. Uh, we're going to start, we're going to pick up where we left off. So we, and then we ended last time with the, the, the drafts of the elegy for Gandalf. Um, so coming back right after that, we're going to, we're going to see where, um, where Galadriel's character really starts to, really starts to flower. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Arthur, I never thought of that before. Arthur says that uh, um, uh, when Boromir makes his crack to Celeborn about old wives' tales, Celeborn is painfully aware that he is standing next to the oldest wife in Middle-earth. I never thought about the old wife thing uh, connected with Galadriel. That's kind of funny, actually, uh, under the circus. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know... A a bit of a gaffe by by Boromir, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Karita, I have to agree, the name Wet Wang is really funny, right? I mean, Wet Wang really sounds like a prank that, like, teenage boys would play on each other, right? I, you know, I don't even know what it would be, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I hear you. I hear you, Karita. Okay. We get to the mirror, right? Let's pick up at the mirror here. Um, oh, hey, I see Rick Delp just joined. Hey, Rick, good to see you again. Okay, sudden awe and fear came over Frodo. The air was still in the hollow dark, and the elf lady beside him tall and pale. What shall I look for, and what shall I see, he asked. None can say, she answered, who does not know all that is in your heart, in your memory, and your hope. For this mirror shows both the past and the present, and that which is called the future, insofar as it can be seen by any in Middle-earth. But those are wise who can discern to which of these, to which of these three, the things that they see belong. First of all, I really like that, that little constellation there, right? Your heart, your memory, and your hope, right? And you see how those are correlated with, though not in sequence, I think, with the past, the present, and the future, right? Memory for past, heart for present, and hope for future, which is that's that's a, uh, I'm really interested in that. Um, in that grouping, you can kind of see how they're oriented, right? Um, and uh, it makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of, it makes me think of medieval psychology, but with a difference. Uh, that is uh, that everybody knows the human brain is oriented in space, right? So like, um, I think this is like medieval and Renaissance, uh, uh, like neurophysiology, basically. The memory, the seat of the memory is in the back of your head, like the, the rear part of your brain uh, is the seat of memory. The middle part of your brain, the top of your head, um, is uh, where the, your, what was called your, your common wit, your common sense. Um, that is like the place where you like think things through and, and like it's where your reason lives and stuff. Uh, and then the, the, the front of your head here, up here in your forehead, is where your fantasy is. And that's thinking about the future, right? Because fantasy, imagining things that you haven't seen yet, right? So when you're anticipating stuff, like if you're worried about something that's going to happen in the future, you're you're thinking about anticipating things, that comes uh, from the 
the the front or or the the, the very top of your head there. Um, so that's that's the traditional and so it reminds me of this right memory. The common wit is you know to to think of that as heart that shifts it right. Um, so uh, uh, that's uh, you know it, it's 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 not the same thing as like the common wit, the reason, right? But it's kind of similar. It's the decision-making thing, right? Um, though it puts a different spin on it. It makes it a little more, I don't know, a little more spiritual, right? A little more, a little kind of, not exactly a hint of morality. That's not quite what I mean, but, um, but it's, 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 it's about choice, but it's about uh, sort of desire and everything as well, being connected with the heart. Um, but then the big difference is the future one, right? Instead of thinking about fantasy, um, it's about hope, right? And that both of them are future oriented, but that's where the really big distinction is. And I'm 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 kind of thinking about the sort of the connections, right, between the original medieval conception of fantasy uh, and its connection with the future and hope. Because of course, obviously, fantasy—something that Tolkien was really interested in. Tolkien talks about fantasy in this. Uh, in this con- in this kind of context, right? Um, in on fairy stories, when he talks about fantasy and imagination, right? That's what he's he's uh, he's dealing with that piece of vocabulary in the old in that old sense there. Um, so, kind of thinking about like what Tolkien says about f- the the sort of the the psychological capacity of fantasy in on fairy stories, and and then kind of I'm kind of j- putting that with hope, right? Uh, and it's uh, that's a that's a that's a Heck, that's a paper topic right there. That's really cool. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, cool. So, sorry, I'm getting uh, I'm getting distracted. I'm, that's that would be that would be a fun uh, that would be a fun uh, a fun paper topic. But anyway, but here's Galadriel thinking about that. Right, all three of these things are involved. So the mirror can show you things that are involved with your memory, your heart, or your hope. Right, things from the past, things from the present, and things from the future. So nobody can say... Now, notice she gives one answer to both of his questions, right? His questions are, what shall I look for and what shall I see? And she says, none can say, right? Uh, presumably, again, responding to both, right? None can say what you'll see. None can also say what you should look for, right? Or what you shall look for, Um you would have somebody would have to know you, right? You in all three dimensions, in order to be able to do either of those things, either to advise you what to look for, or to inform you what you are going to see, or even in a sense what you have seen. Um. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um. Let's keep going. Many other visions passed over the water, one after another. A city with high stone walls and seven towers, a great river flowing through a city of ruins, and then, breathtaking and strange, and yet known at once, a stony shore, and a dark sea into which a blood-red sun was sinking among black clouds. A ship, darkly outlined, was near the sun. He heard the faint sigh of of waves upon the shore. Then, something nearly dark, and he saw a small figure running. He knew that it was himself, and behind him stooped to the ground, came another black figure, with long arms, moving swiftly, like a hunting dog. He turned away in fear, and would look no more. Okay. Now, many other visions. This is not the beginning. I haven't quoted from the beginning of the passage. The, before this, he gets the 
we get the vision of Gandalf, right? So he sees the wizard and then sees that he's dressed in white and he's like, oh my gosh, is it Gandalf? Is it Saruman, right? So, which is very similar to the published text. Um, that that comes first. This is the part that's after that. So first we get the Gandalf the White uh, vision. Then we get these other visions. Um, what do you notice? Yeah, Mariel, this is kind of weird, isn't it? Um... Mario's is kind of uh, 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 weirded out by the fact that the image of the sea seems threatening rather than comforting. Okay, so first we get cities, right? And it's pretty clear what the cities are, right? A city with high stone walls and seven towers, a great river flowing through a city of ruins, right? So we get Minas Tirith and Osgiliath, right? So he starts seeing the cities towards which the company is headed? The, what, the sort of the theater of the end of the war and quest, kind of? They're still kind of going towards Minas Tirith as a group? That's still kind of plan A? Uh, So, okay... I, that would seem to be, what, the near future? Now, of course, notice we don't really know what's in all of, you know, Frodo's heart, hope, and memory, so it's hard for us to say exactly what this is, but we have to, we have to give it a shot, right? Uh, so, okay. Uh, he's headed that direction, so that seems kind of practical, but then we immediately transition from there to something breathtaking and strange, which is the sea. A stony shore and a dark sea into which a blood-red sun was sinking among black clouds. What is that? I have to admit, I'm kind of having a hard time orienting myself in this vision. Um, Uh... James points out, very appropriately, James Stevens points out, that he sees the Tower of the Sun, right? And then immediately sees the setting sun. And as James is reminding us in the drafts, it is called, in fact, the Tower of the Setting Sun, right? That's why we have the whole, like, east-west orientation, right? That there's the Tower of the Rising Moon in the east and the Tower of the Setting Sun in the west, right? With Osgiliath in the middle. Uh, with Osgiliath and the Dome of the Stars there in the middle. So, okay... Uh, so yes, it's the Tower of the Setting Sun, and then he transitions from that to seeing the Setting Sun. So maybe that's the sort of link, right? Um, but where is he standing? I, so there's a ship that's darkly outlined near the sun. Is he on the shore? Looking... I mean, everything would lead you to assume that he's looking west, right? And that the coast, the the shore, the stony shore that he's seeing is the, like, the western shore. It's like Valinor, right? But the sun's in the wrong place. The stony shore would have to be the western coast of Middle-earth 
Because if the sun is sinking into the sea, it's not sinking behind the stony shore, right? So it can't be Valinor that he's seeing it. It would have to be our coast of the sea. And then he's looking out and seeing the sun sinking down behind the sea as he's looking west from the stony shore. So we're not seeing Valinor or, or Elvenholm or anything. We're just seeing the sea, the sun sinking into the sea, and a ship on the sea. Um, Veronica's wondering if it's from Pilargir, maybe. Um, or Tony's wondering if it could be a vision of the downfall of Numenor. See, Tony, I don't think so. I, I was ready for that, because, of course, we get that right? Uh, in the published text. When Frodo looks in the mirror of Galadriel in the published Fellowship of the Ring, he sees the storm, right? The storm bringing the ships with tattered sails. Remember that? Right? Those are the Numenorean ships being driven before the storm out of Numenor. So we do get a Fall of Numenor reference, or rather, we will get eventually a Fall of Numenor reference. So, Tony, I was kind of ready for that, too, when we got to the Setting Sun thing, but I don't see any reason to um, I don't see any reason to think that that's ne- that there's it's necessarily Numenor going on here, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So so he's got to be standing at Kimber. He agrees with me. He's got, he's got to be standing on the on, on the stony shore looking west. Um, uh, yeah, Stephanie, that's a really good point. Stephanie is pointing um, uh, is pointing out that. Um, I'm sorry, is Twitch not working? Darn it. Sorry. My apologies. I think that didn't work. Okay, there we are. My apologies there. Thank you, Gene, for pointing that out. I I think... Sorry, something didn't work there. Um, But anyway, yeah, so he's... um, uh, I think it has to be the setting sun, right? The blood-red sun sinking among... Yeah, it's it's, it's clearly sinking, right? So there's clearly a a thing there. uh, and the ship darkly outlined. You know, I agree with you, Marielle, that that seems... Oh, I don't know if ominous is quite right, but... Um, uh, the coloring feels weird, right? Um, you see what I mean by that? Like the, a dark sea and a blood-red sun... And a ship darkly outlined among black clouds, and a ship darkly outlined. Um, Tony, the black clouds are the one element of that description that really does make me think of the fall of Numenor. Right? They're not shaped like eagles, or else it would be a slam dunk. Right? But it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's at least sort of plausible there. Right? Um, Jennifer uh, asks, how developed is the Numenor story at this stage? Um quite. It's not fully there yet. We're not up to the Akalabeth yet, but all of the essential elements are in place. Um, who the, Num- the Numenorians were, uh, them coming and trying to impress Sauron, Sauron going back with them and corrupting the Numenorians, their rebellion against the Valar, um, the judgment of the, the breaking of the ban, the, the judgment of the Valar, the drowning of Numenor, the escape of Elendil and others, and then the uh, establishment of remnant Numenorean kingdoms uh, and building towers on the western coast looking back over the sea. That's all there um, from the Lost Road material. So, uh, so all of those essential elements are totally there. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, 
I don't know what to do with the tenor of this. Like, blood red, like, that's kind of, that's kind of, I mean, I agree with Marielle, that's stark if not creepy, right? A blood red sun sinking among black clouds, that's not normally how we associate, like, standing on the western shore, gazing down the, you know, the lost road, gazing down the, you know, the, the, the straight path uh, to Valinor, right? That's, like, apart from at the fall of Numenor, that doesn't really seem like a, um, seem like a, a thing, right? A, a way, I mean, have we ever seen it described that way? Outside of the like, cataclysm of Numenor? And again, you know, and, and Tony, I don't see it any other way. I don't see any other reason apart from the black clouds and the blood red sun um, to think that other than that, and, and that wouldn't be from the western shore anyway. Because that wouldn't work. So, Tony, I'm just imagining for a second, what if this were from Numenor, right? What if he were, if it's the western shore of Numenor, with the blood-red sky and the black clouds? That would that would kind of work, right? But then the ship doesn't fit. Why is there a ship? Like, a ship, darkly outlined near the sun. The sun is going down on Numenor, right? There's, not, there's either going to be zero ships out towards Valinor, or a ton of ships, right? The entire armada. So why should there be one single ship? It doesn't work. It doesn't seem to work. Um, Tony asks if it could be a Arendelle. No, but then it's too... I mean... No, it couldn't. Because, again, you wouldn't be seeing it from the coast, would you? Right? I mean, a Arendelle departing the coast is not portentous. What is portentous is, like, the ship sailing from the harbor, like, the last elvish ship. So, if this were, like, a uh, foreshadowing of the end of the age thing, right, it would make some sense, right? So this is, and, and like, the dark ship that you're seeing is the, uh, is the, you'd like the last ship from, you know, Kyrdin's ship heading out, heading off. Um, you know, a certain amount of ominous, like, the elder days are gone and all that kind of thing, you know, that would work. Um, but still, what is the tone suggesting? That they're going to lose, right? Is that, I, I don't, um, yeah. Oh, Tony, you're thinking it could be a Mondo on his errand to Valinor. It's kind of obscure, though, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I see that. I see that. But the, yeah, that's hard to guess. That's That would be a... Very precise, and I'm not sure we've gotten that far. I don't think we, I don't think Amandu exists yet. I'm not sure that it does. I don't think, in fact, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Yeah, that story from the Akalabeth about Amandu Elendil's dad, who sets out to go on his errand to Valinor to try to, you know, uh, reprise Arendel's role. Uh, on the on behalf of the faithful, that's in the Akalabath. I'm pretty sure that's not in the Lost Road, so I don't think that that conception even exists. So even if um, anybody could be expected to guess that from this passage, which would be tricky, I don't think there's any. I don't think it exists yet. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a clever idea, but I don't think it would actually work. Um, yeah, yeah. 
you know, April, I wonder, April is suggesting uh, there on Facebook that you know, uh, his, his vision from and of Middle-earth will be tainted. It feels like that, doesn't it, April? Um, it, this seems like a, a kind of... A, a, and again, I come back to what, you know, Mario was saying before. This vision looks like a portent of doom. I mean, if this, this is not like, and they all sailed off happily ever after, it does not feel like that. There's too much blood in black, right? Um, it, it's, this, this looks like, what, the last of the elves fleeing as darkness sweeps over Middle-earth? Like, it would fit more with that. Even the stoniness of the shore would seem to suggest that. Right. Uh, The idea that like the Middle Earth that's being left behind is rocky and barren and lifeless because the Dark Lord is one. Right. I mean, if if that were what's going on, I could make some sense of this. Right. In which case, this would be a pretty pessimistic vision on Frodo's part. Um, He could be seeing an alternate future in which uh, Sauron wins. Um, Now, Lance, that's a really neat suggestion. Lance suggests that. You know, Gandalf did just die, right? And we're just looking at Gandalf's elegy. Maybe this future is colored by Frodo's despair, right? Or maybe it's a kind of a caution or warning to him, you know, this is what could things could look like. Um, it still kind of seems to me to be a, a little bit of a... a little bit ambiguous, even for that, right? I mean, if the point is to give Frodo a kind of a warning like that. Here's what will happen if you fail. No pressure, right? Um, it's not that that isn't relevant or couldn't work, but if that's what this is, it's still kind of vagueish, right? Uh, it's like, this is what Middle-earth is going to look like if you fail. We're not going to show you anything about Middle-earth if you fail, but we're going to suggest how ominous it is with eerie imagery, right? I mean, it's like, it kind of conveys the mood, uh, but uh, doesn't really provide information and could easily be misinterpreted. Um, Mariel, yeah, the the vision that he gets in the film and Goadriel's explanation of it, which is much simpler, right, uh, in the Peter Jackson film, that seems to communicate that issue a little bit more clearly, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, so uh, Stephen Cover was suggesting, and Kimber was kind of uh, elaborating on this, um, maybe this is sort of the first hint of the Corsairs. That is that is to say, um, we're getting this image for, like, the emotional content of it, right? But then this... This image, Tolkien kind of latches on to this image of the uh, of the ship darkly, you know, this this like this dark ship, the black ship, and and that that's gonna that 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 image is gonna kind of stick with him and uh, and reemerge uh, as the corsairs later on, possibly, possibly. If this ship had black sails, I would be even more convinced uh, of that. Um, huh. Ooh. Ooh, okay, James asks a really interesting question. James Stevens asks, do these visions relate to the to the to those three things, right? Like to the the memory, the heart, and the hope of Frodo. Well, which would be which? I don't know what memory would be, right? If the three visions roughly are we'd have to kind of skip over Minas Tirith, right? You know, the Minas Tirith slash Osgiliath shot that we get at the, at the beginning there. But if instead we get, uh, you know, we just focus on Gandalf, 
Gandalf the White, um, uh, the ship on off the coast, and uh, the pursuit, uh, the overland pursuit that we get there at the end that we haven't talked about yet. Um, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't see any of those three really associated with memory. That's I, I kind of get stuck right away when I try to think about that. I could see the last one, the pursuit, being related to heart. You could see the second one, um, the ominous blood red sun sinking into the dark sea, uh, as a hope thing, not a good hope thing, but a bad hope thing, um, a despair thing essentially. Um, but I, I can't see any of them associated with memory. Um, okay, good. Yeah, Matthew, thank you, Matthew, for looking it up for me. Uh, Matthew was confirming we don't, he, he doesn't see any Amandil, any Amandil figure like that in the Lost Road. That, that's what I was, that's what I thought I remembered, but thanks for, thanks for confirming that. Um, uh, the black figure. A small figure running, and he knew it was himself, and behind him, stooped to the ground, came another black figure with long arms, moving swiftly like a hunting dog. He turned away in fear, and would look no more. That's gotta be Gollum. It's gotta be Gollum. The long arms are the queer... And it's interesting, though, right? Because it's kind of Black Rider-ish, in that we do get a black figure, and of course we know the black figure spent a, a fair amount of time snuffling around and sniffing, right? So them pursuing him like a dog along the ground is would not be wholly out of character for the Black Riders as we met them in the Shire, and yet the long arms make it pretty clear, especially remember the immediate context. Um, they, they just had the encounter with Gollum in the tree, like, very recently. So um, it's pretty clear that Gollum is... Uh, is chasing him. And that's what his final vision is. So instead of the vision of the Eye of Sauron, he has the vision of Gollum. And we've already seen how the pursuit of Frodo by Gollum um, in these initial drafts has a much higher status in the story. Right? It's a much bigger part of the story uh, than it will become later on. Um, uh, yeah, Stephanie, he seems to recognize the, the running figure as himself. Right, um, I'm not sure exactly how he recognizes him, but like he he sees that what he's seeing is a picture of himself being chased, himself being hunted. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, let's. Uh, yeah, not sure what else to make of these. Let's keep going. Judge not these visions, said Galadrien, whose name is close, but not quite there yet, until they are shown true or false. But think not that by singing under the trees, and alone, or nor even by slender arrows from many bows, do we defend Lothlorien from our encircling foes. I say to you, Frodo, that even as I speak, I perceive the Dark Lord, and no part of his mind, and ever he is groping to see my thought, but the door is closed." She spread out her hands and held them as in denial towards the east. A ray of the evening star shone clear in the sky, so clear that the pillar beneath the basin cast a faint shadow. Its ray lit the ring upon her finger and flashed. Frodo gazed at it, stricken suddenly with awe. Yes, she said, divining his thought. It is not permitted to speak of it, and Elrond said not. But verily it is in Lothlorien that one remains, the ring of earth, and I am its keeper. He suspects... But he knows not. 
See you not now why your coming is to us as the coming of doom? For if you fail, then we are laid bare to the enemy. But if you succeed, then our power is minished, and slowly Lothlorien shall fade. Okay, so... Um, Ring of Earth is interesting, right? But hang on. Even before we talk about the fact that this is the Ring of Earth instead of the Ring of Water, notice this is one of those places where we see... First, the mirror was Celeborn's mirror, right? It has become Galadriel's mirror. But in addition, right, um, immediately upon the mirror becoming her mirror, now suddenly she has one of the Rings of Power. And remember, this is a like a double whammy, right? Um, this is a This is a really big, it's a twofold change, right? Not only is he giving one of the three rings of power to this elf lady that he just invented, right? So talk about, like, her stock rising in a hurry, you know, from I am the largely silent uh, Melian-like partner of Celeborn, right? Um, To now she has one of the three rings of power. But remember, he he had to do a recall, Tolkien did on the Rings of Power to do this. He had already decided... Remember in the Council of Elrond, the rings went into the West? They sent the three Elvish rings to Valinor already, to Elvenholm anyway, right? They've gone off into the East, or into the West, into the West, not the East. Uh, They've gone off into the West, right? So the rings of... The three Elvish Rings of Power, not in circulation until Galadriel pops up. And now, like, not only does she get the... Now he wants to give her a Ring of Power, too. Um, So that's... Uh, really, uh, uh, really. So yeah, exactly. Bruce was just remembering that same thing too. Um, so those two things that he does at the same time, right? Bring the rings of power back into Middle Earth in order to give one to Galadriel at this moment, um, is, uh, um, is a really big deal, right? Um, and I agree with you, Brandon, that she does seem to be implying that Elrond has one, Right. Um, when she says, and Elrond said not, right? You know, presumably she means Elrond knows that she has one, right? But but I, I think, you know, kind of the implication there is likely that Elrond has one too. And Brandon says, you know, uh, um, does he know who has the, you know, does Gandalf have the third yet? Well, we've seen no evidence of it yet, right? Remember, there's certainly no allusion to it at the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. Remember the the dark fire and the red fire and uh, the, you know, everything else, the white fire and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, we, we don't get anything about the, the any rings or anything yet. Um, yeah, now, Stephanie, the ability, her ability to block the Dark Lord, right? That, that is classic, right? Um, if you know the Silmarillion well, uh, you may remember, this is a recycling, uh, a direct reference to, to a passage uh, in the Silmarillion where, Meli- where Melkor is seeking to know the mind of Melian, and Melian, but Melian thwarts him, right? Um, so Melian has set up her girdle around Doriath, and Melkor is, you know, trying to... Uh, again, it's, it's, it's very, very similar. Um, what did she say? Um, I perceive the Dark Lord and know part of his mind, and ever he is groping to see my thought, but the door is closed. Um, so yeah, so that's um, she's exactly like Melian. But but notice this is not just at first when we first met her uh, in the earlier drafts, she was like Melian only in being like the quiet 
the quiet one with the penetrating look, right? So she was the one who didn't say anything when the guests come, but when the guests look her in the eyes, they have some kind of important experience, right? Uh, you know, she sort of probes their hearts or even puts things into their hearts or inspires them to say things. We see this happening with Baron, right, in the Baron and Luthien story. Um, that seemed to be, that was that was her job. That was her role. So she was Melian-like in that way, but that doesn't necessarily imply that she's Melian-like in whole stature, right? In the whole, like, the Dark Lord seeks to know my mind, but I am repelling his mind, right? That's kind of, that's pretty, uh, 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 pretty top shelf million action right there, right? Uh, but now we see that that uh, Galadriel gets it. So first she gets the mirror, right? Now she gets these direct million powers, and then immediately ring of power, right? We're recalling the ring of power, and we're putting one on her fingers, on her finger, and it's the ring of Earth. Um, it's interesting. It does. Um, it does seem. It does seem weird, right? Just because we're not used to... Uh, of course, we'll remember, not only are we not used to Galadriel having the Ring of Earth, we're not used to there being a Ring of Earth, right? There was the Ring of Air, the Ring of Fire, and the Ring of Water uh, in the published text. We don't even... Nobody has a Ring of Earth. Um, but um, but we saw that there was already a Ring of Earth um, in the when he was discussing the three rings back when they were still going off into the west um but um but yeah so uh so what what is the significance of the ring of earth why the ring of earth i don't really know i'm not really sure uh i'm not really sure what role that plays or how that fits with goadriel as we see her in this stage it might make sense in some, but I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I, I don't find anything compelling to see like, oh, well, that's why, of course, he gives her the Ring of Earth. I, I don't, I mean, maybe you guys see something I don't. Um, Brandon, I do think this idea of the rings diminishing when the one is destroyed is new. Uh, remember, that wasn't even kind of on the table before, right? Because they'd already gone into the West, so the three wing, the three rings were a non-issue, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> Scott, we're getting to uh, uh, her relationship with Gimli, which I agree with you does look a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit more like a two-way relationship <laughs> in the early draft there. Uh, but anyway, um, Yana's thinking maybe that you know Earth might be related to the trees, you know, and 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 you know, the, like the, the the trees and the roots, and you know, the 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 the, the earth that the trees grow in. Um, Possibly, possibly, um, and um, Tony, an excellent point. Tony is reminding us that the Goathrim are still living in caves at this point, right? Um, the you know that there was that reference to the Goathrim being driven underground, um, like the elves of Mirkwood were, um, and this was when they're the same people, basically the elves of Lothalarian and the elves of Mirkwood. So. Um, uh, so I guess yeah, if most of the elves are living underground, Earth works, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, anyway, 
Um, Lance is wondering if it has anything to do with the Noldor in connection to Aule. Possibly. I mean, you'd think Celebrimbor, looking ahead to a time when Celebrimbor exists, which he doesn't yet, but um, you'd think that Celebrimbor could have been associated. You know, in, in fact, Lance, now that you mention it, it becomes a little surprising that Celebrimbor, when he comes around, doesn't make a ring of Earth, right? Why wouldn't he? Um, I mean, he was kind of earthy, right? Minor, forger, right? But um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway, yeah, so this idea of the doom of the elves, right? The association of Frodo's coming with the doom... Notice how that is all kind of born here, right? Um, and I agree with you. Is it uh, Stephanie? Were you the one who was saying? No, Jennifer. Um, that we can see Tolkien discovering Goadriel as he goes along. And, and you know, to- Tolkien always talks about his writing like that. And I agree. We can see that. It's like we can see that happening here, right? Um, we get the... Uh, we get the the ring of power here. He decided the rings of power were going away, but it is, you, you, you can, like, she has to have a ring of power, right? Or rather, to say it the other way, to say it the way that Tolkien would say it, this is the point when he realizes she has a ring of power, right? The rings of power, he, 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 he now discovers that the rings didn't go. Goadriel has, they couldn't have gone because Goadriel obviously has one, right? Um, Anyway, okay, let's uh, let's keep going. So this is uh, um, more outline-ish, right? Frodo offers Galadriel the ring. She laughs, says he is revenged for her temptation, confesses that the thought had occurred to her, but she will only retain the unsullied ring. Too much evil lay in the ruling ring. It is not permitted to use anything that Sauron has made. Frodo asks why he cannot see the other rings. Have you tried? You can see a little already. You have penetrated my thought deeper than many of my own folk. Also, you penetrated the disguise of the ringwraiths. And did you not see the ring on my hand? Can you see my ring? She said, turning to Sam. No, lady, he said. I have been wondering much at all your talk. This is, of course, again, one of those moments where he starts off in an outline and the, the dialogue starts coming to him, right? He he begins to, to hear it as he goes along. Um... As the picture of Goadriel, as he's discovering more about Goadriel, notice one element that isn't there instantly, right? It's not, as we see, it's not going to take long for it to come, but I passed the test is the element that I would say is not here, right? Um, In the published text, of course, she emphasizes what could happen if she did take the ring, and then says, no, I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, I am, I, I passed the test. I'm not going to, so I'm going to say, this is, a, I, this, is a, this is a temptation, right? And I'm, here I am resisting temptation, right? Um, there's an element of that here, but it's not the same, right? Too much evil lay in the ruling ring. It is not permitted to use anything that Sauron has made. Um, she will only retain the unsullied ring. Um, 
Yeah, Arthur, you know, I, I, I sympathize with that. Arthur is uh, thinking that Frodo might respond by saying, oh, oh, my ring isn't good enough for you, right? Your ring is on, my ring is sullied, right? So you've got the unsullied ring. Um, Arthur, I, there, I mean, of course, Frodo's not going to say that, but but there is that, that, that dynamic kind of seems to be there, right? When she, uh, when she rejects the ring here, it doesn't sound like, Ah, you know, with that ring, I would have power too great and terrible. I'm going to say no. Instead, she's like, nah, I, you know, I kind of prefer mine. My ring is unsullied. That one, that one's nice and everything. Don't get me wrong. But it's, there's too much, it's got too much, there's too much baggage, you know, with that ring. And anyway, it's not permitted to use anything that Sauron has made. It's, it's, it wouldn't be right, right? She goes there, right? But it's not objection number one. It's not like I must not use the ring. And again, remember, again, in the published text, the whole, you know, um, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen speech that she makes, you know, the very famous speech that she makes, that is all about her spelling out, here is what would happen, right? Um, I know these things to be the consequences that would come if I took the ring, so I'm going to say no, right? We don't get any of that. We just get, oh, there's a lot of evil in it, and I'm not allowed. And anyway, I kind of like my unsullied ring. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to. I'm good. I'm good. I'm gonna hang on to the one I have, right? Um, and great question, Stephen and Marielle and Nancy, all at exactly the same time asked, not permitted by whom? Who passed the rule against not permitted to use anything that Sauron has made? Um, no idea. Bruce was asking the same question. I, I, I don't know. The council? But the White Council was still just like a wizard's council that apparently Goadriel and Caliborn crashed, right? As far as we can see, their showing up at the White Council meeting seems to be the first indicator, the first concept that it was anything but, uh, you know, a sort of continuing education uh you know, gathering, you know, is like a, like the annual conference of the White Wizard Association, essentially. Um, but w- maybe they're like guest, uh, uh, you know, uh, celebrity guests or whatever. Maybe they were given a, a plenary lecture or something. Um, but so I, but, but again, their relationship to the White Council still seems tangential enough that I'd have a hard time imagining that like it was decided at the council. Maybe it's like among the wise, though that's still not a phrase. Has he ever used that phrase? I don't think that phrase has come in. The wise, capital W. Um, has he? I can't remember. But anyway, um, yeah, Tony asks, you know, says maybe the elf lords have their own council. It's possible. I mean, her allusion to, you know, she she, she talks about Elrond, and, and, you know, there's clearly some collusion there between her and Elrond, or, you know, excuse me, them and Elrond, her and Kelvinborn and, El- and Elrond. Um, but we don't get a sense that they're like a judicial body that's going to pass, you know, give permits to, or deny permits to use rings, right? Um, I agree. It's a strange, it's a strange um, phrasing there. Uh, not permitted really does suggest there was a, there was an adjudication, right? There was a there was a rule passed that that's not allowed, um, and I have no idea who would have passed it. I mean, of course, it could have been passed by a, it could have been passed by the Valar, it could have been passed by a Luvatar, but how? When? How was that communicated? Like, did the Valar send her a memo? You know, like FYI, don't uh, use anything that Sauron has made. It's not permitted, right? It's 
do, do the Valar do that? I don't see any reason to think that they do. Iluvatar even less. Um, now, Stephanie suggests it could have been Tom Bombadil, because he is master, right? I love that idea, Stephanie. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to, um, I think I'm going to believe that. Yeah, that uh, uh, the, 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 the permission, the denial of permission comes from Tom Bombadil. I think that's excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, the latter discussion between them there. Um, Frodo asks why he cannot see the other rings. Um, and she points out that he does already have power, right? He shows power that he didn't have before. I'm not sure what she's referring to when she says you penetrated the disguise of the ringwraiths. Um, am I being dumb? What's that about? When? When was their disguise penetration happening? I mean, in the Shire, when he met the ringwraith, there wasn't any moment where he was like... And now you are revealed. I mean, he was still kind of clueless. At the Ford, James? Maybe. Oh, Stephen. Yeah, Stephen and Lance are thinking about Amon Sul. Yeah, at Weathertop. So when he, right, Matthew as well. When he puts on the ring at Weathertop and then he sees them. Okay. Um, uh, okay. I guess I wasn't thinking of that because that seems kind of lame. <laughs> that is to say, like, she's talking about how his own thought has become more keen, right? That, like, his own power has increased through his possession of and use of the ring. As illustrated by her seeing the ring on his... his seeing the ring on her hand even though he's not wearing the ring or anything, right? So again, he's not under the influence of the ring at the time. He's just like, it's just who he is. And But now he can see the ring and, and Sam can't see the ring. So he has been intrinsically changed already by the ring as evidenced by his being able to see the ring on her finger. But that's not what happened in Amon Sul, right? He saw the ring wraith while he was wearing the ring and thus in the wraith world. So as Gandalf explains it, right? He, he was partially in the wraith world himself when he is wearing the ring. That's why he's invisible uh, to everybody else. So, looking around and, like, entering the wraith world and seeing wraiths there doesn't seem to mean like any idiot who put on the ring would have seen the ring, the the, the, the ring wraiths, right? Because he was seeing the wraiths. He's in the wraith world. So, if that's what it, she's talking about, and that's the only one I can think of, too, it seems a little lame. You know? Again, like anybody would do that. It's not about him. Exactly. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's keep going. Since he's recalled the rings, right? Uh, since he's now discovered that Galadriel has one of the three rings, we can see him scribbling off to the side and, and figuring out 
the rings, right? Okay, so now we have to change the three ring thing. So here's uh, here's the new ring. And remember, the last time we saw the rings, two things were true about them. A, they were gone. They'd been sent off into the West. And B, they were made by Sauron. Um, so we kind of skimmed over that just before. I prefer to keep the unsullied ring. That's new too, right? So it's not a double whammy. It's a triple whammy, right? In this one moment of discovery... He does three different things. Reverses his decision about the what happened to the three rings. He gives one of the three rings to her, and he decides that the rings weren't made by Sauron, right? Which they had been all the way up through, and we saw from the very beginning, the initial concept was that every single ring of power was made by Sauron. Right, and he gave some of them to to to, to wraiths. No, they they didn't need them. He gave some to elves, and he gave some to men, and he chucked some around and let random people find them. Um, and that's where. So eventually, as that as that kind of came into focus, and we we have the you know sort of the narrowing down of the quantity of rings, um, the idea that some were for the elves, and some you know, three were for the for the elves, and seven were for the dwarves and stuff emerged, and that was fine. But they were all still Sauron's rings. Apparently not anymore. It's unsullied, right? So what are we going to do about that? In ancient days, before he turned holy to evil, Sauron the Great, who is now the Dark Lord that some call the Necromancer, made and contrived many rings of wonder. He made rings of power. And then he stops. So notice the first impulse, right? Let's do both, right? So, okay. Remember, it's a given. It's always been a given that Sauron made all of the rings of power. But now he's discovered that Galadriel not only has a ring of power, but it's an unsullied ring, right? It's not evil at all. So, okay, that requires some rethinking. Thought number one, right? Plan A. Sauron made him before he turned to evil. So Sauron made an unsullied ring, right? That's re- So we get this initial flirtation with the idea, I suppose that the making of the rings of power was itself part of Sauron's own fall into evil. That's kind of cool. Actually, I kind of like that, but um, it seems to be the impulse there. But anyway, okay. Then uh, he then follows written out anew the opening sentence of the first version. And then in ancient days, the great enemy came to the lands beyond the sea, but his evil purpose was for a time hidden even from the rulers of the world. And, and the elves learned many things of him, for his knowledge was very great and his thoughts strange and wonderful. In those days, the rings of power were made. It is said that they were fashioned first by Feanor, the greatest of all makers among the elves of the West, whose skill surpassed that of all folk that are or have been. The skill was his, but the thought was the enemy's. The th- three rings he made, rings of earth, sea, and sky, but secretly the enemy made the one ring, the ruling ring, which controlled all the others. And when the enemy fled across the sea and came to Middle-earth, he stole the rings and brought them away, and others he made like to them, and yet false. And many others he made of lesser powers, and the elves wore them and became powerful and proud. Okay, this is a radical new story. Now, When I say a radical new story, it is quite possible that this is radical with a capital R. 
do you see the potential implications here? So, concept. The rings are unsullied because they're made by somebody else other than Sauron. So this seems to be the very first time that that concept is being toyed with, right? That somebody else made the three elvish rings, right? So who could have made the three elvish rings? Oh yeah, Feanor, right? Feanor, of course, Feanor. Feanor would probably do that as like a pet project on a weekend, right? So Feanor is going to make the rings. Cool. That fits. Sort of. Um, what's, what's the problem, though? Yes, Jennifer, I'm wondering exactly the same thing. Um, which enemy are we talking about here? In ancient days, the great enemy capital G, capital E, the great enemy, came to the lands beyond the sea. Came to the lands beyond the sea. Not Middle-earth. Valinor. But his evil purpose was for a time hidden, even from the rulers of the world, and the elves learned many things of him, for his knowledge was very great and his thoughts strange and wonderful. So what we're talking about here is not the Second Age of Middle-earth. What we're talking about is the probation of Melkor. The great enemy is Melkor. We're talking about the time when Melkor was in Valinor, when he was on probation, right? And the elves learned much of him, and he was still evil, but he was deceiving everybody successfully, right? So Morgoth is the one who influenced the making of the Rings of Power. So when we say uh, the skill was his, Fanor's, but the thought was the enemy's, we mean Morgoth's thought, not Sauron's thought. Morgoth's thought. Okay, so three rings he made, Fanor. So Fanor in this time makes three rings, earth, sea, and sky. But secretly the enemy... Morgoth made one ring, the ruling ring which controlled all the others. And when the enemy fled across the sea and came to Middle-earth, he stole the rings and brought them away. Yes, Yana, that is exactly the question that I can't help but ask. This sounds like a retelling of the Silmaril story. Is he going to change that? Is he actually replacing the Silmarils with the Elvish Rings of Power? I mean, there's bringing the firewall down and integrating the, the Silmarillion tradition and the, and the Lord of the Rings story. There's integration. And then there's complete the Silmarils, for crying out loud, right? So we're going to redo the Quintus Silmarillion without the Silmarils, or we're going to make the Silmarils into Rings of Power. That really seems to be... Because the role that they're playing is... This, there's no hint here, right? There's no hint here that the enemy stole the Silmarils from Feanor and also palmed the rings while he was at it, right? 
Because, you know, Feanor kept him in the same vault, and so he just grabbed the lot and went away with him. It really does seem... <laughs> Jennifer's like, but but what will Baron and Luthien steal? I know, right? Like, one of the rings of... Pa- is that what's going to happen? I, Yeah, I mean... This concept, and this only is, this only, you know, he's only toying with this for a minute, right? First of all, there's precedent for this kind of thing. Um, we have seen the brief suggestion, anyway, there, there, we have seen before Tolkien very briefly toy with, I'm going to change everything, right? I'm going to do everything totally differently, um, which will necessitate the complete rewriting of everything, right? Um, that's the kind of thing we've seen him do before. But, um, uh, yeah, Stephen is wondering, do the three each have their proper gem, one Silmaril each? Well, that's the question, right? And Stephen, one would ask, what's up in the star, shining down and making a shadow underneath the mirror, right? If that's not a Silmaril up there and a ring down here, is that, the th- is that where the, like, the ring of sky is or something? I don't know. I mean, so... We shouldn't spend too long on this because this is only a brief flirtation that Tolkien has with this idea, but um, but it's kind of amazing, right? It's not kind of amazing. It's really amazing. Um, and why? It's Galadriel's fault, right? Because all of this, because Galadriel has a ring, and then she opens her mouth and she's like, I have an unsullied ring. So we're like, okay, the rings are unsullied. I, how, how could that happen? Um, but the idea that he... Again, I don't care how briefly it is that he flirts with this idea. The mere fact that he's going to elevate the rings of power into the position of the Silmarils, for crying out loud, the central f- features of the entire <laughs> mythology, right? That's why it's called the Silmarillion, right? Uh, which it already was. The Quintus Silmarillion is when he named it just earlier than the year. Okay, it was now like two years ago. But still, uh, you know, 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, that was the title he gave to it, right? So, um, amazing. Right, amazing that he even briefly, so that that talk about elevation, right? Talk about uh, you know a concept growing. Um, this is kind of uh, kind of amazing. Um, my question is, when is Sauron going to get involved? Right? Did Sauron did like is Morgoth going to leave the ruling ring to Sauron in his will? Right? If if it's Morgoth's ring. Initially, then, you know, how, how, how does Sauron come? How does the junior assistant come into this picture at all, right? Um, but uh, okay, so he's, this is only that's only a brief dalliance, as I said, with that idea, but still sufficiently startling. Um, now we go back and we're doing another draft, and watch what happens. Right, the Lord and Lady of the Galathrim, are G- Galadrim. Sorry, no the yet. The Lord and Lady of the Galadrim are accounted wise beyond the measure even of the elves of Middle Earth, and of all who have not passed beyond the seas. For we have dwelt here since the mountains were reared and the sun was young. Was it not I that summoned the White Council? And if my designs had not gone amiss, it would have been governed by Gandalf the Grey, and then mayhap things would have gone otherwise. But even now there is hope left. First of all, 
she was not making this speech first time around, right? This is not the way she was. This is not the quantity that she was talking. First, now, not only is she carrying the dialogue, she called the White Council, right? So she's the one who decided to... to, to so she's now the chair, of, right? She's the organizer of the conference, um, not just a sort of a, a guest of honor here, right? Um so, uh, yeah, exactly, Brandon. It's not WizardCon anymore, right? She, she's now, uh, it's something that she has brought together. And I agree, Brandon, it does seem that it's, it's at this moment, right? When the White Council, now it's still not quite clear exactly what it is, but um, it is now no longer just a gathering of wizards, right? And she, not we, she is at the center of it. Um, and... Uh, yeah, Lance, I agree. Now all of a sudden it sounds like she's just kind of throw. you know, Celeborn has totally become her plus one at this point, right? There's, there's like, uh, uh, he's just, he, he's kind of a throw in, right? The Lord and Lady of the Galadrim are accounted wise, right? Um, but it, it doesn't take long for her to go from talking about we to talking about I here. Um, so yes, Jennifer, Celeborn's fall from power happens very, very quickly, but, and it's not, in a sense, you know, it's one of the really kind of cool things, right? Because when you look at the first draft, when Celeborn is like the dude in charge, right? When he really is the, the figure of power, his lines are the same. Like, it, he keeps his lines, most of them, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not... So it's not actually that he... Um, it's not actually that he diminishes so much as that she just shoots up past him and so far past him that he looks puny in comparison. He's the same size. It's her that's different. Um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, he's the really br- bright flashlight in a dark room and then you step out into the sunlight and you can't even tell it's there, right? That's kind of like Kelleborn from the first draft uh, to the later drafts here. Um yeah, yeah. Um, and Marielle, uh, I agree that summoned, uh, was it not I that summoned the White Council, does make it sound like a singular event, right? Um, it's, it's the thing that it was. That is to say, it's the, um, the fact that she's calling it suggests it's not just a gathering of professional, you know, magicians anymore, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. So yeah, she's um, she's huge. But look at this. Look at the reaction that they have to her now. To me it seemed exceedingly strange, said Boromir, and I do not feel too sure of this elvish lady. Maybe it was only a test and she sought to read our thoughts for her amusement, but almost I should have said she was tempting us and offering us what she had the power to give. It need not be said that I refuse to listen, since the gift was not offered to all alike. The men of Minas Tirith at least are true to their friends. But what he thought the lady had offered him, Boromir did not tell. Well, whatever you may think of the lady, said Ingold, she was a friend of Gandalf, it seems, though this was one of his secrets that he did not tell me. Tonight I shall sleep without fear for the first time since we left Rivendell. Okay. Um, the most striking thing about this passage, right, apart from the whole Ingold thing, right, this is Aragorn, right, we need to remind ourselves where in the process we are here. Um, This is Aragorn, and during that brief time when we are considering renaming him Ingold, um, uh, 
the most striking thing, right, is that uh, is what the Aragorn character doesn't say, right? What does he say? What does he say in the uh, in the published text? Do you remember? Boromir says almost the same, not quite the same speech, right? But when Boromir gives the speech that's almost like this. Yeah, Aragorn jumps down his throat, right? Speak no ill of the Lady Galadriel, right? Like, smack, Boromir. Take it back and wash out your mouth, right? Aragorn is all over him when he says that, right? He, he is rebuked by Aragorn. Um, Ingold, yeah, Jennifer, he doesn't know her at all, right? Um, and he seems open to it. He's like, well... Whatever you may think, right? She was a friend of Gandalf, so he's like, well, uh, uh, I can say this anyway, right? Um, it, she was... But notice, he doesn't even have Gandalf's word for that, right? Gandalf didn't mention that. She claims to be Gandalf's friend. So basically he's saying, well, she claims to be Gandalf's friend, so um, I guess that's good. And, and that seems to be kind of enough for him. Right, he does express his confidence in her. He's not worried, right? He's not worried that this is one of those witch house situations, right? Where you, uh, you know, you you go to a magical wood and you get brought in for hospitality, and and you know, then they like fatten you up and eat you. Like he doesn't think it's that kind of a, you know, it's not one of those bad fairy queen situations, which sometimes happen, right? Um, so he seems comfortable, confident in her, but he doesn't leap to her. He doesn't know her. He doesn't leap to her defense. Um, but this is not what interests me about that is not the fact that um he doesn't know her yet right i mean that's fine we already saw that right that's consistent with what was there in the first draft when Celeborn greets aragorn slash strider slash elfstone slash ingold and says um your reputation precedes you right you've traveled many places but you've never been here right so okay so he doesn't have any personal experience there I'm fine with that, but what's interesting to me is that essentially, without Aragorn's outburst, without Aragorn's Aragorn's rebuke of Boromir, we the readers are permitted to think what Boromir. So, like Boromir has just said, like I think she was tempting us. I think she was trying to lead us astray. Without Boromir, without Aragorn's rebuke, we're kind of like, hmm, yeah. Sounds plausible, right? I mean, okay, Ingold is comfortable, but uh, but yeah, Boromir makes some fine points, right? And remember, he himself, Tolkien, not in the not in the the full narrative, but in his outline, used the word temptation to describe what she was doing, right? If we go back to that for a second, let's see where was that? Not there. Uh, yeah, she says he is revenged for her temptation, right? Um. Uh, so he's already used that word, and I do suspect is he is he using temptation in the older sense of meaning just a test? Um, probably yes, but still, um, it's the same word. You know, Boromir says perhaps it was only a test, right? Um, but I should almost have said that she was tempting us. That is to say, Boromir is essentially playing with the two different meanings of the word temptation, right? Lead us not into temptation. Which means in in you know in archaic English, don't don't test us, right? Don't test our 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 metal, right? Um, 
don't don't let things get hard, right? Um, but there's also to tempt to to uh, to, to try to draw someone in, away from virtue, right? To try to draw someone um, uh, into into vice, right? So um, that's he brings up both of those versions, right? Maybe it was just a test, but maybe she was tempting us. Maybe she's trying to corrupt us, right? And Ingold's like, well, I don't know, but she says she knows Gandalf and I'm cool with it, so I'm going to hang out. And so we, as readers, are left a little bit more up in the air about that. And that's kind of interesting, I think. Um, yeah. And Tony, you're right. Boromir is still kind of right, even in the final version. I mean, at the at the end of the day, Tony, if I have to choose between Boromir's suspicion and Aragorn's rebuke, Boromir's kind of more right than Aragorn, right? Um, I mean, he's all like, upon the lady, upon her, and upon this whole land, there is no stain. Not sure he's right about that, right? Um, I don't think she would agree with that. She acknowledges that she's tempted by the ring, right? And if there's no stain on her, like if she's wholly spotless, then um, what's the issue, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Lynn, that, Lynn asks a good question, like, why is Boromir protesting about being true to his friends and stuff? I agree, Lynn, that his rationale, uh, the rationale that he gives for refusing what she offers seems a little odd, right? He doesn't say, it need not be said that I refuse to listen. And he's, by that, he does not seem to mean, you know, granted, I knew that what she was offering me was sketchy and wrong, right? So totally, I said no, because I'm that kind of guy, right? That's what he seems to be saying in the published text, right? Here, he says... I said no, of course. Not because what she offered was sketchy and wrong, but because the gift wasn't offered to all alike. She was she seemed to be just offering something to me alone, and I was like, Well, but can I share with the class? And if I can't share with the class, then I'm gonna say no, because it's not right, you know, to have a treat in class if you don't have enough to share with everybody, right? It's a rule in Minas Tirith, so yeah. I'm not going to have any of that. Here's my theory, Lynn. Um, my theory is that Boromir talks that way so as to tip us off to what was in his head. Because we're not told, right? We don't know what he was tempted by, and he's not saying exactly what he was tempted by, right? Right. In fact, the narrator is going to immediately say, but what he thought the lady had offered him, Boromir did not tell. So I think that his, like, but the gift wasn't offered to all alike, is meant to be a hint for us. It's meant to um, indirectly suggest, like, he's kind of betrayed a little bit about what he was tempted by, right? Um, Because what he seems to have been tempted by, based on his words there, would seem to be... Um, distinction, right? That is, like, to set him above his companions. She's offered him, what? The ring? Lordship? 
We know that's going to be an issue for him, right? Remember, this is the Boromir who's going to get passed over for promotion, and then he's going to he's going to go rogue, right, and uh, betray Aragorn and go over to Saruman. Um, that's still the latest thing that we know of the future story for Boromir. So, not to mention, of course, the, the attempt to seize the ring. So that um, you know, I'm going to try to separate you above all of your friends and and put you in charge and give you power over everybody. That would seem to be the implication, I think, of what. Uh, of what she offered him. So that's my understanding of the function of it. But Lynn, I agree. It still is a little bit, it makes his protestation seem weak, right? Um, I, obviously, I refuse to listen for kind of like lame sounding reasons, right? And again, maybe he's supposed to sound lame there. And so that's again, part of the point. But um, but I agree that it comes off a little strangely. Um, yeah, okay. All right, so now further ironing out of this whole ring situation, right? So we can't have the, we can't do the Silmaril thing. So if we can't do the Silmaril thing and, and we need to bring it back to Sauron. So let's, let's, uh, let's, let's cut Morgoth and Feanor out of the situation and take another crack at it. In ancient days, Sauron the Great contrived many things of wonder. For a time, his purpose was not wholly was not turned wholly to evil, or was concealed, and he went much among the elves of Middle-earth and knew their secret counsels, and they learned many things of him, for his knowledge was very great. Now notice how much that is taken, how much of that is taken even word for word, from the description of Morgoth's actions in Valinor during the, un- the time of the unchaining of Melkor, right? So... This whole idea... So we're not going to recycle the Silmarils anymore, but we are going to recycle the probation period of Morgoth. So now, just as Morgoth was circulating among the elves of Valinor and was influencing them then, even though he was not wholly turned to evil or was concealed, so now we're going to, we're going to shift that uh, to Middle-earth, right? So, uh, so again, we have this repetition, this recycling of the concept there. Um, not recycling in the old sense, in the Hobbit sense, right? Um... But a repetition, right? We're going to take and we're going to we're we're going to do the similar thing, in a smaller scale and in a different place. It's going to be Sauron instead of Morgoth. It's going to be the elves of Middle Earth in the Second Age. It's not going to be the elves of Valinor. Okay, in those days, the rings of power were made by elven smiths. Ah, Celebrimbor is looming now, right? Um, the rings of power were made by elven smiths, but Sauron was present at their making. His was the thought, and theirs the skill. For these rings, he said, would give the elves of Middle-earth power and wisdom like that of the elves of the West. So don't you want to be awesome like the Noldor of old, right, over there in Val... Like Feanor, who made the Silmarill. So now we're going to emulate Feanor, right? Um, But still that same... with The same thing that was said of Feanor and and Morgoth before is now being said of Sauron and these as-yet-unnamed elven smiths. Um... His was the thought, theirs the skill. So they made them, but he put the idea in their heads. Um, and the idea is for them to be great. Notice how Garden of Eve-like this temptation is, right? Um, you know, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will not surely die, but your eyes will be opened and you will be as God, right? It's that 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 same kind of pattern, right? Don't you want to be greater than you are? Don't you want to don't you want to exceed the works of the ancient greater elves of old that you've heard about and stuff? Um, okay. So uh, struck out as soon as written, they made many rings, but one and three and seven and nine were rings of special potency. Uh, the one 
only did Sauron take as his reward. So, first impulse, have them make all the rings. All the rings are made by the elves with Sauron as their assistant, or rather his thought, their skill, including the ruling ring. So the ruling ring is made by the elves, too. And Sauron takes it. So like he's like, can I have the boss ring? And they're like, okay, you know, we owe you a lot, man, so you can have it. Anyway, we're going to get rid of that. They're not going to make them all. The elves made many rings at his bidding, three, seven, and nine of special potency, and others of lesser virtue. So they're still making all of them, except the one. Now, now we're, so they're not going to make the one and then give it to Sauron. That has to come totally from him. So, all right, so we're on board now. Um, uh, oh, I skipped, but he cheated them, right? Okay, so right, he was he was just swindling them the whole time. But anyway, okay, so special potency, others of lesser virtue. But knowing the secret of their making, secretly Sauron made one ring, the ruling ring that governed all, governed all the rest, and their power was bound up with it, to last only so long as it too should last. And as soon as he made it and set it upon his hand, the elves found that he was master of all that they had wrought, and they, and they were filled with fear and anger. Sauron sought to seize all the rings, for he saw that the elves would not lightly submit to him. But the elves fled and hid themselves, and the three rings they saved. And these Sauron could not find, because the elves concealed them, and never again used them while Sauron's mastery endured. War and enmity has never ceased between Sauron and the elves since those days. Okay. Um, So, Mariel, we're still in ancient days, right? But it's clear that we're not in ancient, ancient, ancient days anymore, right? It's not, it's, it's, this is not happening in Valinor. Um, He's a little vague, about when exactly it happens. So, for instance, Marielle, do we have enough data to be able to figure out, does this happen before or after the fall of Numenor? Right? I don't think we do have enough data. Um, I mean, we know Sauron is involved in the fall of Numenor, of course, but, I mean, it could be either one. Still, it could be either one. Because the Ring of Power, his Ring of Power is totally independent of the Numenor story. Right? Um, So... There's no reason, based on the stories that we've seen, why it should be either before or after the Numenor story. So, um, so I don't really know how uh, how ancient the days in question are, really. Um, now, Mariel suggests that the narrator not being sure if Sauron is fully evil or not would suggest pre-Numenor. I agree, Mariel. That sense of like. For a time, his purpose was not wholly turned to evil or was concealed. By the time he gets to Numenor, his purpose has wholly turned to evil. There are no two ways about that, right? He still deceives the Numenorians, but but, but it's, it's, he's a bad guy, no question, right? And sets out to destroy Numenor. And, you know, we get the, like, blasphemous worship of Morgoth and the human sacrifices, and st- things get pretty bad pretty quickly um, there. So I agree, it does suggest pre-Numenor. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jennifer Pope says, And over at Alan and Unwin, they are expecting a nice, relatively short sequel to The Hobbit any day now. Yeah, a good thing to remember every now and again as we go through this. Okay. Um, so, we don't have Celebrimbor yet, but notice... Notice how much sense Celebrimbor makes, right? Celebrimbor, grandson of Feanor, right? So we get, like, we're eventually going to get a Feanor knockoff, right? To include, you know, to include in that role. So that's cool. 
but he doesn't but he doesn't go there immediately which is interesting so we're, we're going to do the parallel to the Morgoth and Fanor story it's not going to be the Fanor story it's going to be a parallel to the Morgoth and Fanor story all of the rings of power therefore are going to be unsullied or originally unsullied that's how I take that right so the three the seven and the nine were unsullied rings until Sauron got them back when Sauron got the nine and the seven or most of the seven back, then he sullied them. I don't know what that process was like, and frankly, I don't want to know. But um, uh, but anyway, I, 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 he sullied them, right, and twisted them to his purpose. So that so then when the nine go and and corrupt the the mortal men, and uh, you know the dwarves get inefficiently corrupted, but yet corrupted. Um, that happens after he has successfully recalled them. So it is the fact that they keep the rings ever from falling into his possession that makes them that makes them uh, special. So, yeah, uh, Jennifer, you're right. Probably hatred and slime are involved in the corruption process. I I agree. Okay, um, Christopher tells us. The white stone in Galadriel's ring is not mentioned, and as in the original text, she still calls it the Ring of Earth. In response to Frodo's offer to her of the One Ring, Galadriel laughed with a sudden clear laugh of pure merriment. Pure was struck out early, and afterwards of merriment. And as my father first wrote her words, she said, And now it comes at last, the final probe. So now the element of this is a test, right? Um, it's a probe. It's a test. I'm being, I'm being tested. Um, and she laughs. Laughs in pure merriment. And first her merriment becomes less pure, and then she, it, ceases to be, it ceases to be a laugh of merriment. But if it's not a laugh of merriment, what is it? If she just laughs a sudden clear laugh, we still have to understand that, right? Stephen is a laughter of madness. Yes, yes. Uh, um, yes. Then Galadriel cackles maniacally, right? Uh, saying, and now it comes at last, the final probe. Um, anyway, so the, um, the... 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 concept of the test enters in. Um... But her merriment is really interesting. Um, it suggests a really, in, a really, just a fascinating relationship between her and the Valar, her and the Luvatar, that she sees it coming. She has known that she would be probed, that she would be tested again. Um, And now, when it comes, she greets it with delight. (laughs) Lynn says uh, she hears probe and all she can think of is alien abductions. Yeah, uh, presumably not like that. Um, I suppose if it's the final one, that's a good thing, right? Um, James is thinking maybe the thing that makes her laugh in merriment is the innocence of Frodo's willingness to give the ring away. Um, maybe. Maybe she finds that delightful. Um, but, uh, 
or maybe, James, what she finds delightful is the kind of irony there, right? That the final test for her would come not at a moment of stress, you know, not in a, not in this highly dramatic way, you know, not uh, with her confronting the enemy and, or anything. It's just with a, a, a kind and polite halfling who is freely offering her the ring of power, right? Maybe the unlikeliness of the situation is such that it sort of surprised like I never okay I knew I was going to get a final test but I had no idea it was going to look like this not that I think that she would necessarily think little of the uh, um, of the test itself right that she finds the idea that she'd take the ring of power laughable um, but that she's kind of I don't know finds the irony or the the comedy of the situation um yeah, yeah. Um, Kimber says there's still a glimmer of tralalalali in this elf, and I think you're right, Kimber. Um, and Arwen was just saying a similar thing on the Twitch chat that it sounds rather bombadilish. Um, her reaction sounds rather bombadilish. Um, and and Arwen, you're totally right. I can absolutely imagine Tom Bombadil responding with a laugh of merriment if you offer him the Ring of Power. Right? That's obviously how Tom Bombadil is going to respond. Um, yeah, yeah. So, again, we're going to leave this behind. That the merriment behind, you know, the the idea of the trial is going to stay. The 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 merriment that accompanies it is going to go. But I think it's really cool and a really nice compliment to the grandeur, right? I mean, she has become super grand, super fast. She has uh, gone from not existing to being the barely named sidekick of the Lord of the Galadrium, to now being clearly one of the greatest, most important elves in the history of Middle-earth. I mean, with the significance that the Three Rings are being given, um, I mean, this is a really big deal, right? Um, even the fact that she that there's a trial that she undergoes separates her from others, right? I mean, others were offered to just go back if they wanted to go back, right? Um, other elves have sought the havens, and there's no sense that they were... They had to take a test first, right? They had no entrance exam uh, to the ships, to the westbound ships. Um, but Galadriel seems to have one, right? So she's special in some ways. And yet, so while she is become so huge and so grand, um, Kimber, I like... I'm coming back to your wording here. Um, it's... There's still there's still a glimmer of tralalalali, right? Um, she's st- you know the, so the fact that that's still that 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 still an element in her character that Tolkien sees, I think, is really cool. Um, okay, let's uh, let's carry on here. Confessions. So we're only just now starting tonight's chapter. <laughs> Which puts us almost a full class behind, but we're still doing fine. Uh, let's keep going a little bit. I know I started late, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll go a little bit late. I don't want to keep you guys forever, but um, I'll go a little bit late to make up for the time that I was late. Um, okay, we're now looking forward from this, right? So so again, recall Lothlorien was only two things: escape from the elves of Moria, slash brief encounter with Gollum, and then the location of the breaking of the fellowship, right? Um, 
now, as he begins to work that out more, he wants to push the breaking of the fellowship further south, right? Um, so so he, now he introduces the journey south from Lorien. The travelers must choose which side of Anduin to be on at Nith Lorien. River is narrow, but something at Stone Hills. Not possible to cross without a boat until the bridges of Osgiliath. Celeborn says they must journey in the morning. Though his people do not often go outside borders, he will send them by boat as far as struck out Tal Undu, Tal Unui, Tal Undrin, the great Carrick. The east bank is perilous to elves. River winds among the border hills struck out Duel Eminrhine. There they must decide because the Wetwang, Palath Ninui, lies before them, and to reach Minas Tirith they must go west round and across, added along hills and then across and wash. But to go the other way they must cross dead marshes. Remember the dead marshes remember when the dead marshes were just one in one little bead in the string of adventures, right, that was connecting Rivendell and Mount Doom, right? That was the first time the Dead Marshes appeared. Now he's thinking through the geography, right? And we have the emergence of this whole geographic stretch between Lothlorien and and the cities, right? Between between Lothlorien and Osgiliath, essentially. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. So um, I love thinking about what will eventually, what is called Tol Andrin here, which will be Tol Brandir, of course, eventually, um, uh, being uh, being called the Great Carrick, because you know uh, he calls those things Carricks, so we know it's a generic term, right? Um, big old rock in middle of river, right? Is uh, is called uh, is called a Carrick. So of course, this island in the middle of the river, right before the falls, is going to be called a Carrick. Um, and that's the focus point, the Carrick itself. The fact that he's calling it a great Carrick reminds us of, of Bjorn's Carrick, which is where they landed, right? So, um, it seems like the that's where we're leading up to. So the the Breaking of the Fellowship is going to happen on Tolbrandir, on the Great Carrick, I guess, right? Um, but this is the first time now we get this idea of the, you have to choose which side of the river you're going to go on, right? And this is interesting to me because the element of the story that seems to me to be most new here is not the like going to Minas Tirith. Like, before they were just going to Minas Tirith. That was plan A was to go to Minas Tirith. Um that was a stage in the journey that Frodo was supposed to take. Now comes in the idea that, well, maybe we shouldn't go to Minas Tirith, right? Maybe that's not the best plan. Um so the the idea that there is an alternative that straight to um straight to, to the black land, you know, straight, straight to Mordor should be the the way the fellowship goes. Seems to really be kind of coming in here um, as a as a as a prominent idea for the first time. Remember, the marshes and uh, the path the passes into Mordor and everything. That's part of the post breaking story. Before it's part of Frodo's journey, 
right? But he didn't set out that way. He just ran away from Boromir and then eventually got tracked down by Gollum. Um, and he ran off, not like, and now I'm going to make the choice to set off into the east. He just hoofed it, right, when, when Boromir was chasing him and the rest of them were trying to track him down and failing, except for Sam and Gollum, of course. Um, so this idea of you as a fellowship need to choose whether you're going to Minas Tirith or whether you're going straight to Mordor, and you can delay that choice for a while by taking boats down the river, um, is new. I also wonder, and I have no idea, the East Bank is perilous to elves, specifically, like more so than to everybody else. What, what special anti-elf precautions have been taken on the East Bank, I wonder? Um, uh, I'm being joking about that a little bit, but it, it, that, that does strike me as a little bit strange. This doesn't sound just like him saying, the East Bank is perilous, man. Like, I, you know, be careful on the East Bank. He could just say that, right? Why would he say is perilous to elves? Because remember, he's suggesting here that they're going to go with him. Not Celeborn himself, but Galadrim are going to go with them. Right? Though his people do not often go outside borders, he will send them by boat. Send them, not the fellowship, his people, right? He's going to send Galadrim with them. So my folks don't go outside, but I'm going to send them as far as Tall Undren. So it's in that context that he says the East Bank is perilous to elves. So I take this as y'all need to make up your minds, but my people are not going to the East Bank. It's dangerous for elves, right? And again, I, I don't know. Do orcs sense elves better? Oh, no, I've got it. I've got it. I, I totally see why. I totally see why. Because what's going to give away the elves? The orcs are going to sense elves on the eastern shore more clear, more quickly, right, than they would... Than they would sense anybody. Exactly, Karita. The smell, right? Because the orcs over there on the eastern shore would be like, mmm, smells like elves, right? So the elves have this really strong, but extremely pleasant, presumably, B.O., which the orcs can detect, and so that's why, so yeah, it's really dangerous for elves on the eastern side. Yeah, yeah, Kimber was also thinking of that too. Yep, no, I think we've solved it there. That's obviously why it's specifically more dangerous for elves, um, and why obviously it would be, it would be, it would be uh, terrible, even for the Fellowship, right? Because the Fellowship's own position would be um, uh, given away by the highly aromatic company uh, that they would be keeping at that point. Okay. Um, now the story continues to grow. We can't let go of Galadriel and Celeborn yet. As now that they've been staying there for a long time and they've been... Um, we need to have a formal fa- farewell, Right? totally out of the picture before. But now, clearly, they can't just take off, right? They have to say goodbye. And since the Lord and Lady are who the Lord and Lady of, we're going to have gifts, right? They're going to give... Naturally, they would give gifts, right? So this whole farewell to Lorien sequence uh, seems to emerge organically as the company is trying to leave, right? It becomes something that clearly, clearly they have to do. We are come before you to make all ready, said the Lady Galadriel, and now at last we must bid you farewell. Here you are come at last to the end of our realm, to Kalendil, the green spit tongue. I'm glad that line got cut. <laughs> the green spit tongue. 
I mean, I know what she means and everything and and laughing at it is a little bit immature. I totally acknowledge, but I mean, come on. Like that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was, that was a good revision. Green Tyne. Three boats await you with rowers. That's nice, right? Sending along with people to row the boats for them. Uh, they get into the boats. Elven archers in one behind and one before. Company two in first, Ingold Boromir. Hobbits in middle, Legolas, Gimli behind. So, since they have elvish rowers, we can put all the hobbits in one boat, which would be pretty dumb if they were doing it all, if, you know, if they're supposed to be in charge of the boat. We don't want to put all the hobbits in one boat. But again, since they're, they've got, they've got an escort, right? Um, that all, it's a sensible grouping under those circumstances, even from a perspective of ballast, right? And Golden Boromir are enough weight as, and it could only weigh as much as four hobbits put together, so it's all good. Okay, parting gifts. Warning against Entwash, Ogodruth, and Fangorn. Not necessary to Boromir and Ingold, but probably Gandalf did not tell them all. Um, yeah, because there's giants that live in that land, so you gotta watch it, right? Blessing, because remember, Ent still, there's no reason to think yet that Ent means, like, tree person, right? Um, still, he's still, still just a giant, Still just a normal Jack of the Beanstalk giant. Um, and that's what the word Ent means, as it did in Anglo-Saxon. Um, so, uh, yeah, James, do we have any reason to believe that the trees in Fangorn are dangerous? Yeah? Have we seen that? I don't know. I don't know that we do. Um Yeah. I think it's just dangerous because there are giants who live there. You know, you got to be careful about that kind of thing. Anyway, um, Blessing of Galadriel on Frodo. Song of Farewell of Elves. Swift passing down the river. Description of the green ravines, maybe. Talondrin. We've got the great Carrick there. Scene with Boromir and loss of Frodo. End of chapter. <laughs> I love that. End of chapter. Uh... So that's all one chapter, clearly, right? I don't know where that chapter was meant to have begun, right? Um, it's already at least two chapters from the published Fellowship of the Ring, uh, but um, uh, it might have been even more. Maybe this was the Mirror of Galadriel chapter, possibly, actually, but I'm not sure. Anyway, okay. Um, so we can see the concept of the journey down the river is still similar to what we had seen just there in, in the in the previous draft. Um, with the parting gifts and the blessing of Galadriel on Frodo. Again, notice, it's not, Celeborn isn't blessing anybody, right? Uh, it's clearly, it's, uh, it's, it's clearly about Galadriel, and it's about Frodo, right? So she's going to bless Frodo, um, and she's going to give gifts to folks. No clear plan for the gifts. Back to the Elvish Escort. Argument in Pavilion at night. So this is before they leave Lorien. They postpone decision until they reach Talondrin, the Great Carrick. Um, so now this concept of the choice of roads, do we go to Minas Tirith or do we go straight to Mordor, is now creating dissension, right? We're not sure what's going to happen. Remember, back in the first drafts, this moment, when they were in Lorien, this was when we were just going to uh, amicably dissolve the, the Fellowship, right? Um, 
And that was in the first speech that Kelborn gave when he was like, okay, so um, thanks everybody for coming. Now, uh, Legolas and Gimli, you can head back north. You're done, right? Uh, the rest of you can go down to Minas Tirith. I frankly don't even know what you hobbits are going to do. You shouldn't be here anyway. Um, so, you know, that was that was, um, that was was Kelborn's take, right? The first, uh, uh, the first time through. Now, um, we see uh, there... There, the debate is really in: Do we go to Minas Tirith or do we go uh, to Mordor? Um, so that he seems to be—we're drawing out the tension. We're not just going straight to the breaking. We get this uh, uh, this decision, which becomes so telling and leads, in a sense, uh, to uh, to the breaking. They sail in number changed between two, three, four, final figure, probably three boats, one filled with bowmen before and after. Farewell of Galadriel. They pass into the ragged. We don't care. Kelborn probably said goodbye too, but whatever. They pass into the Rhine Hills, where river winds in deep ravines. A few arrows from east. First glimpse of a, one little adventure they're going to have along the way, right? Not clearly perceived, but you know we're going to get some arrow shooting. Elves give travelers special food and gray cloaks and hoods. They say farewell at Tall Undren and leave travelers struck out a boat change to two small boats. So they're going to leave them with two boats at Tolondren. I don't know what they're going to do with them after that, but they're going to. So, so the elves are going to leave then. So we have the elvish escort, and then after that, so as soon as the elves leave, we're going to break the fellowship, right? I guess. Okay, one more. The company lands on Tolondren, then debate. Frodo and Sam want to go on with the quest and get it over. That sounds like Sam's phrasing, right? Boromir against it, vehemently. They beg elves to wait while they decide. They cross to East Bank and go up into into Green Hills, or Eminhrein, to look around. So all of them cross over to the East Bank? Which is an interesting thing to do. It sounds like Boromir's losing the argument. And they're headed towards Mordor? I guess? Right? Um, yeah, Stephen is wondering if two, how sm- two small boats will carry the company. Well, Stephen, my, what I take from that is that the boats originally are big. Remember, they've got a bunch of rowers, right? So, uh, like, there were the four hobbits plus elvish rowers. So, each of these, the boats that they were taking down clearly seats, what, six, eight people easily? Probably, Right? Because um, they all have elvish rowers, plus the rest of them. So the boats that they will eventually have in the published text, I think, would qualify as small boats, even if they were slightly bigger, right? So that they were fitting them all into two of them, which wouldn't be too impossible to do, right? Remember, there's only eight of them, so they're split up three, three, and two um, in the published text. You could split them up four and four, and they'd still be, you know, smaller boats than... Because we don't even know how many rowers they had. Um, the elvish rowers, it makes me think of like those river boats with the uh, the little like pavilion on the back. So you've got the, you know, the rowers and the, you know, like the, the kind of thing that like, uh, you know, Henry VIII uh, gets uh, when, when they row Henry VIII up the Thames to, uh, to, to, to Hampton Court, you know, and like the Tudors or whatever. Um, you know, the kind of boat that they would ride in in that kind of a situation. Um 
that's the kind of boat that I'm picturing when I'm picturing the elvish rowers and uh, and the, not that I think that the you know the hobbits are necessarily necessarily lolling on pillows under the pavilion in the middle, but that kind of thing, right? Uh, so so any small boats that would be paddled instead of uh, instead of rowed, right? Would be um, would be would be would count as small boats. So even if they were like big canoes. Um, yeah, Timothy, I'm thinking something more like river barges, uh, small river barges, than than uh, than uh, canoes, you know, that type of thing. Um, uh, swan-shaped paddle boats, do you think, Carita? So the elves are are all are all pedaling, right, to uh, to make the like flappy swan feet go. Uh, that seems that seems right. That seems right. Um, Okay. Anyway, uh, I should let you guys go. It's getting super late. Uh, so thank you guys for joining me. We're we we actually we're not bad. I only have like four more slides, so we're actually less far behind than I was last week. So that's good. Um, thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Don't forget about the fundraiser. This is our uh, this is our time when I'll be reminding you. So I do encourage you. Please just go to signumuniversity.org/fund. Uh, to uh, get to our annual fund page, and uh, and then you can click through from there to donating. Uh, thanks very much. I know that several of you already have donated. Thank you very much for that. And uh, thanks, everybody, th- who is going to be donating uh, here in the next uh, couple weeks. So thanks, everybody. Don't forget uh, to support us in the campaign, and I'll see you guys again next week. Bye now.